Hello and welcome to Japan Media Tour. I'm your host, Stephen Tiam, and today we're going to be talking about the 1973 film Lady Snowblood. Now, if you're a fan of Quentin Tarantino, you're going to want to stick around for this one because this movie was a major influence on his Kill Bill series. And in fact, I think this movie is even better than the Kill Bill films. Uh, this was just a masterpiece. Visually striking, well acted and directed, beautifully shot, and just a classic story of revenge. But uh, before we get to that, I just want to look into the headlines a little bit and see what's going on in Japan. So, one of the things that I've been seeing a lot recently in the news, and if you've been following any Japanese news, then you've probably seen it as well. It's the rise in bear attacks in rural areas of Japan. And I recently hiked the Nakasendo Trail, which is a traditional route. Between Kyoto and Tokyo. And along the way, there's lots of beautiful post towns in the mountains. It goes through Nagano and Gifu and other beautiful mountainous regions of Japan. And I noticed while I was walking along the paths of the Nakasendo that there's little bells every so often. And what these are for is you're supposed to ring the bell. In case there's bears in the area, and I, I guess I, I don't think it scares them away, but it alerts them of your presence, and it's it's better that they know you're coming, I suppose. You don't want to surprise a mother bear and her cub, or you know you might end up in the news. You might end up、uh, in this segment next week.、Um, and I've also I've been thinking a lot over the past few years of buying an akia, or one of the very cheap abandoned. Houses in Japan. Sometimes you'll see them listed for $20,000, $10,000. Sometimes you see them for free.、Um, of course, I'm sure there's always a catch. I, I think there's some taxes you need to pay, and most of them need a lot of work, so you'd have to pay renovation costs. But、uh, this, this story about the bears has, has got me thinking twice about that.、Uh, maybe it would be better. Better for me just to buy a place in a big city like Tokyo as opposed to the Akia. But I don't know. When I, when I see those beautiful houses listed for free or for very cheap, it's, it's hard to say no. And now, our feature presentation Lady Snowblood, directed by Fujita Toshia and starring Meiko Kaji. So, this film was actually based on a manga by Koike Kazuo. And I don't know about you, but manga always seems like such a recent thing to me. But they've actually been making manga for hundreds of years in Japan.、Uh, even the famous ukiyo-e artists, such as、uh, Hokusai, they were making manga. And actually, once Japan opened up to the West, a lot of art collectors were snatching those up and making fortunes. Off of manga. So it's been there for a long time and、uh, it's been somewhat popular for a long time, although the, the modern explosion in popularity is pretty unprecedented, I'm sure. So the film begins in a prison in Kanagawa in 1874. And for those of you unfamiliar, Kanagawa is an area south of Tokyo 
there's a lot of historical things, uh, shrines, temples down there. It's a really nice vacation area and pretty close to Tokyo. So if you're in the Tokyo area, pretty easy to check out, get there by train pretty quickly. Um, so the first thing you hear in the film is a baby crying. It's dark, uh, it's set in a prison, and this baby girl who's just shrieking, it's actually, it's quite shocking. As soon as the, the movie starts, I was like, oh man, what am I, what am I in for here? What have I gotten myself into? I felt, <laughs> I felt like I was expecting something very, very dark. So this baby girl turns out to be the main character of the film, and her mom tells her two pieces of important information right off the bat. So first, she tells her that she needs to carry on her vendetta against those who have wronged her. And second, she tells the baby that she is an Asura demon. I'll talk more about that in a bit. But then, it flashes forward to the girl as an adult. And the first thing that stands out is how striking the visuals are. It takes place in a beautiful snowscape. Uh, you see a beautiful young woman, the main character, who, who is the uh, eponymous Lady Snowblood, or Yuki which means snow in Japanese. And she encounters a gang of men who she then slays. And when asked why, she replies to their leader that it's an act of revenge for the powerless people who they've wronged. So, you know, this sets up a sort of anti-hero dimension to the main character, or a Robin Hood type, that, yeah, she's probably going to do some brutal things. We know she is. But uh, she's doing them for the right reasons. And I think, you know, everybody loves an anti-hero. Just look at the popularity of some of the, the superhero films these days. I'm not the biggest fan of superhero films personally. Although uh, I, t I do tend to like the anti-heroes. I, like, uh, I like Wolverine a lot. He's, he's one of my favorites. So everybody loves an anti-hero, don't they? And going back to the name. So Snow White in Japanese is Shirayuki Hime. And Yuki, our main character, her full name is Shura Yuki. So that Shura instead of Shira is a play on words uh, because they sound so familiar. Shura means Asura, as in the aforementioned Asura demon. So the main character's name is effectively Snow Demon. Yeah, that's Shura Yuki, Snow Demon. So she's a type of demigod, which... You know, it, it kind of reminds me of some anime character or something. Like, uh, if you're familiar with uh, Inuyasha anime, I'm thinking of Inuyasha in this case. He's, uh, he's some sort of half-demon or something, right? So that's, that's what I thought of when I heard of her as a, a demigod, a snow demon. Uh, I'm not sure how, uh, how apt this analogy actually is, but hey, that's, that was just my first thought. So Asura is also a Buddhist term for the most difficult of five possible paths that one can follow through life. So, you know, Yuki is just, she's having a, a very difficult time. I mean, right from birth, she's got this mission of vengeance that she needs to accomplish. You know, it's it was always destined to be a life of violence for her. She didn't choose this. This is her path that she must follow as an Asura demon. And the writer of this film or the writer of the manga, I should say, wanted to create a strong female character set in a time when women had little to no rights and were looked down upon by society. Um, we could talk about how women are looked at in modern Japanese society, 
but at this time they were definitely under the boot of of society in general but she she breaks that mold every time she slays an enemy it's like a, a work of art as she's destroying part of the caste system that's held her and other women down so the narration tells us that this film takes place during the Meiji era this was after 300 years of peaceful Tokugawa rule which was the Edo period and the Edo period was characterized by being a very isolationist time it was it was peaceful uh, people were making lots of art. It was very unlike the turbulent Meiji era, which was to follow. Um, the Edo period was when a lot of the, the great works of art, such as the aforementioned Hokusai and Ukiyo-e artists, were creating a lot of their masterpieces, such as the Great Wave off Kanagawa. And even if you don't know the name of that piece, I'm sure you would recognize it if you saw it, because... It is ubiquitous. You'll see this all over the world. Cafes, street murals, wherever you go, you're going to see The Great Wave by Hokusai. Uh, anyway, the, the Meiji era, when the film was set, lasted from 1868 to 1912 and was marked by rapid modernization, imperialization, and a newfound openness to Western ideas. Uh, the juxtaposition between the traditional closed-off Japan of the Edo period and the open and modern Japan of the Meiji era is a running theme throughout the film. Uh, Yuki's weapon, for instance, is a traditional Japanese parasol with a sword that comes out of the bottom. She actually uses the, the top of the parasol for defense while she cuts down her enemy with the sword attachment. Th this is just such an amazing weapon. It would really lend itself nicely to a modern video game or something like that. I could I could see this being in some new anime that comes out. Um, the movie then flashes back to 1873, and you see Yuki's mother, along with her husband and child, walking in the seemingly peaceful countryside when suddenly three men and one woman, later to be named Tsukamoto, Kitahama, Shoke, and Takemura, rush them and murder the father because they su suspect him of being a conscription officer um, just because of the way uh, he's dressed. Uh, this is at the time of Japan's first ever military draft as the nation was trying to create a military to rival the powers in the West. Um, so that, again, it tells you a lot about the Meiji era when they were opening up to the world and seeing themselves as potentially uh, an imperial power that could, uh, could match match some of the European nations. Um, so a, a good line from Yuki about her mission for vengeance is, uh, even before we enter the world, we are marked by karma. And uh, this, this type of cool line really, it sets up the atmosphere of this film and sort of her, her cold attitude throughout the entire film. You just see her, she's, she's stone-faced. She, she really is icy. Uh, you know, her, her name, Yuki, is just, it, it's so perfect for her and, uh, and her attitude. Um, so it's, it's then revealed that Lady Snowblood's mother was in jail for murdering a man named Tokuichi Shoke, who was one of the crew that killed her husband and son. And uh, she won't be able to get vengeance as she's in prison for life. And now is when I'm going to have to give uh, a spoiler alert. 
In fact, just uh, just consider this a spoiler alert going forward for the rest of the podcast because I will be giving up some some plot points. So if you haven't seen it, if you'd like to see it, um, then may, maybe now now would be the time to to pause and and come back. So what happens is Yuki's mother actually dies in childbirth, and Yuki goes to live with a strict priest named Dokai. Uh, we then skip to 1882, and an eight-year-old Yuki is enduring an abusive form of training from Dokai. She starts off as a, a scared, weak girl who won't even look her master in the eye, but then transforms into a killing machine, uh, dodging sword attacks and, and doing flips in the air. And, uh, you know, this is when we can see her develop into something maybe slightly more than human, you know? She's got a little bit more ability than others and you know that's that's why she's perfect for this this mission she she was born for this she really was and now she's being trained to be something even better by this dokai and his strict training regimen so i, I don't want to belabor the connection between this film and kill bill but it was obviously a huge influence on tarantino when he made the latter, you know, the the training that uh, Uma Thurman's character goes through in that. And, you know, how, how she just, she becomes so, so focused on her mission of revenge. So if you haven't seen that film, that that's also a good one. I, I haven't seen it in a while, actually. Maybe it's time for a rewatch, but it's a good movie. Go check it out. Um, back to Lady Snowblood, though. The, the cinematography and the use of color in this are just incredible. Um, this would be the type of movie that I could watch even on mute and enjoy. I mean, it's so beautiful. One of, one of just the nicest looking movies I think I've ever seen in my life. Um, the angriest Yuki ever looks. So, you know, she's, like I said, she's pretty emotionless throughout the movie. You don't, you don't get much from her. She's kind of robotic. She's just a killing machine. But the angriest you see her get in the entire movie is when she sees Tsukamoto's grave. This is one of the men who was part of the the gang that, uh, remember, killed her her mother's husband and, and child, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, she, she sees Tsukamoto's grave and realizes that he's already dead and she won't have the chance to kill him herself. So this just tells you what Yuki is all about. Um, she then slices and kills the flowers that were laid on his grave and breaks her sword on the tombstone. Um, yeah, just to get all this frustration out, thinking, oh, I, I really wanted to be the one to kill that guy. That was part of my mission in life since I was born, was to do this, and now I will not be able to. Um, it's not enough that he's gone. She, she wanted to be the one to do it. Um, so... One thing that's really cool about this movie that I noticed is the seasons are a really important thing in Japan. They definitely have four distinct seasons, and you'll even see, if you search online, people say, oh, Japan even has uh, 72 micro-seasons, or you'll see different numbers, too. I saw 72, 48, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, focus put on the different seasons in Japan, and you'll see this with all the seasonal items that you'll find even at uh, at a place like McDonald's. They'll have like something for spring, they'll have something for winter, they'll have all these special burgers, special offers. Um, 
yeah, different stores have different things. So it's it's pretty cool to watch the seasons change there, actually, because everything feels so special, right? It's uh, it it's really cool, and this movie really reflects that. It uh, it adds to the tone of the movie. Uh, it it sort of it gives the movie uh, a life cycle of its own, and it uh, so it adds a, a temporal element, obviously, and it it makes us feel as though this truly is a movie about the land of Japan. And when you compound that with the focus on the Meiji era and its distinction from the Edo period, this is, <laughs> it's such a Japanese movie, which makes it really cool to study if you love Japan. So <laughs> if you do love Japan, watch this one and you'll you'll sort of feel the, the energy and the, the culture of Japan and, and how it develops over time. I, I love it. That's why I, that's why I chose this as the first movie for this podcast because I think what this movie does and what this movie says about Japan that's kind of a microcosm of what I want to say about Japan over the course of doing this podcast as I add more and more episodes and add more forms of media that I want to talk about and sort of connect the dots between different uh different arts and culture uh, throughout Japanese history. Anyway, after Yuki visits Tsukamoto's grave, we're introduced to another crucial character uh, of the film in the form of a writer named Ashio, who publishes a story about Lady Snowblood and her search for vengeance. Um, I really like this. It's, it's very meta. As uh, you know, this story was written by a manga author, and now within his story, he has this author writing about Lady Snowblood. I like that type of thing. Um, So it turns out that in the film, this story written by Ashio is actually part of a plot by Dokai to lure Kitahama, who's another of Yuki's enemies. Sorry if I'm throwing too many names at you, but it's to lure Kitahama out of hiding to try to come and kill Yuki. Uh, this also causes word of Takemura's murder by Lady Snowblood to get back to his daughter, Kozue, whom Yuki actually previously bumped into and befriended um, at the top of a cliff, actually. they, uh, Yeah, that was actually a nice scene, seeing them. It's like, oh, wow, she actually made a friend after just being so cold throughout the movie. But uh, yeah, the friend turns out to be the daughter of one of the enemies, Takemura, that Yuki had murdered. So Dokai's plan ends up working, and Kitahama shows up in town looking for Yuki. Uh, Kitahama is the female member of that uh, evil crew of four. So her and her goons torture the writer Ashio to try and get him to tell where Yuki is. Uh, Yuki shows up at night in a white kimono for a showdown with Kitahama and her flunkies. Uh, she slices them up, uh, sprays blood everywhere. Um, this is actually a little bit cheesy, but I think she, she sort of paints it like a hokusai piece, but in the opposite. So instead of hokusai's great wave with the calming blue, it's, uh, it's a Meiji-era blood red. Yeah, Meiji-era blood red as opposed to an Edo period blue. Um, Then, suddenly a gun is fired, and 
to me, this this almost had an effect like someone suddenly turning on the lights in a theater or like um, breaking the fourth wall or something. I don't mean that in a bad way at all. This was one of my favorite parts. Um, the effect was so powerful. It kind of woke me up from a dream of the a dream of traditional Japan and sort of opened up the the brought the film closer to reality. Uh, the firearm coming into play is another nod to the Meiji Restoration and Japan opening up to the wider world and its technology. Uh, not saying that guns weren't around in Japan before this, but just that everything in the film has been very traditional, and now we're seeing something more recognizably modern um, for the first time. This reinforces, of course, the major theme of the film, the traditional versus the modern. They they just they hammer that point home, and I love it. At this point, I, I also thought about uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, in Star Wars. What he said is that the lightsaber is an elegant weapon from a more civilized day, uh, unlike the blasters or, or laser guns that they use in Star Wars. And I kind of feel this way about the sword as opposed to the pistol. I know, obviously, swords are extremely brutal, but in some way, in the back of our mind, I think we we believe that it's more elegant than a gun, right? A gun almost seems seems too easy or something. So yeah, I, ju- I, I drew that connection between Star Wars and Lady Snowblood for whatever reason. Again, you can you can tell me if you think this is uh, this is apt or if this is a, a ridiculous thing to say. Um, so after this, Yuki finds Kitahama hanging by her neck, dead. And again, you know you know Yuki well enough by now to know that this is exactly what she did not want to happen. And you can clearly see the disappointment on Yuki's face. It's so reminiscent of when she found Tsukamoto's grave. Um, but nevertheless, she slices Kitahama's lifeless body in half at the waist. Um, again, the brutality of swords. Maybe maybe not that elegant. Um, so you, you see that disappointment. Um, it's like her, her duty would not be fulfilled unless she herself does the killing. So she had to do a little damage after, even if Kitahama was already dead. So, you know, Yuki doesn't want things done the easy way. This is her mission. This is this is the reason she's alive, basically. She was born for revenge. So a cartoonishly colored curtain then comes down after this, and we transition to a new scene. Uh, Yuki's questioning whether this is the end of her journey. Uh, the narrator asks... Can the bloodied snow return to its gentle purity? So after all this killing, all this violence to start her life, can Yuki ever just live life as a regular woman? Um, Tsukamoto Gishiro, the ringleader of the group Yuki is seeking vengeance against, then shows up, and it's revealed by Ashio that Tsukamoto had faked his death in order to evade the police for the crime of smuggling opium. Uh, Tsukamoto is now an arms dealer and works directly with the government of Japan in order to try and strengthen the military and make Japan into a superpower. Um, Something that certainly would not have flown in the, I don't know, let's say more innocent Edo-era Japan. Uh, He talks about how it's a changing world and he wants to ride the waves of change to riches and power. So, yeah, very modern man, this enemy of the more traditional Yuki.
Uh, Yuki walks right past Tsukamoto in a moment of pure tension. This is a brilliant scene. Just walking down the street of a, a small town. She doesn't recognize Tsukamoto at first. Um, and then another big reveal here. It's, I mean, it's spoiler alerts for the for the rest of the podcast. So Ashio then reveals that he is actually the son of Tsukamoto. And in the final act, Yuki rides into a charity event on a horse-drawn carriage. Uh, the event is a distinctly Western-influenced masquerade decorated with the flags of nations the world over. Uh, at this point in the movie, we hear English being spoken for the first time. And it's almost like we've awoken from a dream or maybe fallen into a nightmare of a modern era. Uh, it's very similar to the moment earlier when we first heard gunfire. Um, though this scene, this later scene, is even more powerful than that. I think th- this was incredible. The whole time I was watching the film, it felt like the Meiji era was so long ago and that I couldn't really connect with it. But suddenly it feels so close and modern. This is really great filmmaking. Uh, clearly more than a simple action movie with a revenge plot. It, it really is. I was I was thinking about that. Going into this movie, I thought, okay, this will just be a fun sort of you know action revenge movie. It is so much more than that. This this really is a great film. Um, and you'll see that as, as soon as you turn it on, I think it's going to defy your expectations. Um, so at this event, Yuki is the only one dressed in traditional Japanese attire as she once again dons a white kimono. Um, she ends up slicing off both of Tsukamoto's hands and cuts him down. Uh, however, this turns out not to be Tsukamoto, but rather a different man wearing a mask of Tsukamoto's face. Um, so then Ashio also joins Yuki in hunting down his father. Tsukamoto ends up shooting and killing Ashio, and then Yuki stabs right through Ashio's back and into Tsukamoto's stomach. Uh, she kills both of them, but not before Tsukamoto fires a bullet into Yuki's stomach. Uh, as Tsukamoto dies, he slumps over a balcony and drips blood all over an American and a Japanese flag. Uh, he falls off the balcony, ripping the Japanese flag off and bringing it with him to the ground below. Um, I mean, this this symbolism, it's extremely obvious, but it's the type of thing that really works when you've been slowly building up a certain narrative throughout the movie. Like, if this was just done randomly with nothing else being built up before, I'd be like, okay, all right, that's a bit obvious. But the fact that the director had built everything up throughout the story, I think it makes it brilliant. It's it's a perfect, perfect way for the final of that evil group of four to go out, dragging that Japanese flag, that bloody Japanese flag, to the floor with them. Uh, Yuki then stumbles out of the ballroom into the snow, bleeding from the gunshot wound, and she's stabbed by Kozue, uh, who then runs off. So, yeah, um, Yuki, Yuki is bleeding, stumbling through the snow. She collapses, and then you hear her just cry out this, this guttural scream, um, the likes of which we've never heard throughout the whole movie. Um, 
except perhaps, you know, when she was a baby wailing at the very start. So it really, it brings everything full circle. And it reminds me again of those seasons, the momentum of this movie, the life cycle of this movie. Um, you feel the time passing, you feel Yuki's life progressing and her getting through her mission. Just the the pacing of this movie, the the temporal aspect, it's so perfect. Um, we see her then, she's collapsed, she buries her face in the snow. The next day, she wakes up as the sun rises, and this is where the movie ends. So, overall, I love this movie. I'm not going to give it a rating or anything, but I'm rating it very high. I'm suggesting it. If you haven't watched it, I guess it's it's spoiled for you now, but uh, yeah, I, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Just I love that. Just looking into the the Meiji period. I mean, during the Meiji period, Japan was starting to become rich, uh, starting to discard some of the distinctly Japanese things that made it special. Things about its society. Uh, in the same way, Yuki was seeking vengeance on those who wronged her mother. The traditional side of Japan also had a vendetta against the establishment that discarded it. Um, Lady Snowblood is, in a sense trying to fight to keep the traditions of Japan alive. All right, so before I go today, I just want to just give a little recommendation. If anyone's in Japan, I always just want to drop a little something, a little, could be a restaurant, could be a shrine, a bar, something for, for you guys to check out if you're, if you're out in Japan. So today's... Uh, Today's recommendation, it's, it's a little bakery in Kyoto. It's called Maruki Bakery, M-A-R-U-K-I Bakery. It's a little neighborhood spot. It's, you know, not too far from downtown. Probably, you know, walk there from the center of town, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. And it's uh, a bunch of nice ladies running the shop, just making sandwiches. They make donuts. They get, uh, like, a burger. Uh, I, I sampled a couple things. Had a fried fish sandwich that was pretty nice. Yeah, just some. They got some different desserts and things like that. So I just, you know, thought you should go check that out if you're if you're in Kyoto, just looking for something easy, something simple. Uh, I will say uh, it does get lined up, but uh, the line moves quickly. Uh, you gotta be you gotta be efficient. You gotta be ready ready to pounce once. Uh, once you're the next one in line, know what you want and just just step up and uh, and get yourself some some delicious baked goods. So yeah, if you're if you're in the Kyoto area, just uh, check out Maruki Bakery. So that's it for today. Uh, next time we're going to be talking about one of my favorite games of all time, and that is Earthbound or Mother Two, created by Shigasato Itoi. So I'm very excited to talk about that. I absolutely it's it kind of defined my life i played that since i was a little kid and i i still replay it now and again to this day so i know a lot of you will be familiar with that one and know it as a legendary game uh some of you might not and i'm excited for you to hear about it too it uh it goes a lot deeper than what it might look like it it looks a little cartoonish and and silly and it is but it has a lot of uh references to uh, a lot of Japanese and, and international cultural things that I think are very appropriate to the theme of this podcast. So, 
Yeah, again, thank you very much for listening. Uh, this is Stephen TM signing off, and I'll see you next time for Earthbound.